Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, it says, Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever pleases him. Where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment, because for every matter there is a time and judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. For he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? No one has the power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has the power in the day of death. There is no release from that war and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. All this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. He went to a funeral who had come and gone from the place of holiness and there were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. Therefore, the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged, yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity which occurs on earth, and there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. So I commended enjoyment. Because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. And this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God. That a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempt to know it, he will not be able to, to find it. In chapter 8, the preacher returns to the theme of wisdom. In the first seven chapters, he's been talking about wisdom theoretically, philosophically, intellectually. Sort of like pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. But now he examines the issue of wisdom in the real world. In other words, knowledge and wisdom that is given in the Bible, will it really work in the real world in which I live? Remember the theme of the book. Does life have Meaning 
This week I saw a little cartoon quip. There were two characters and they were lying in the grass uh, on a grassy knoll. And one character says, what's the meaning of life? The other character said, what's the square root of a tomato? Yeah, that's it. Exactly. The other character said, that's a stupid question. Oh, right. In other words, if there is meaning to life, can we really know it? Is it even worth pursuing this question? But Solomon is not willing to give up so easily on his pursuit. Does your life have meaning? In chapter 3, the preacher intimates God has a purpose for our life. And, in, and then in three chapters, God gives riches according to his will. In chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, God's wisdom is available to guide us throughout our life. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. And so the subject of wisdom and the theme of wisdom between chapter 6 and chapter 12 will occur some 30 times. Wisdom is subtle. Sometimes it's bold. Solomon has lauded and applauded the benefits of wisdom. Wisdom provides balance for our lives. Wisdom provides strength in our walk. Wisdom provides insight into our circumstances. God's wisdom has value. Even human wisdom has value, but it also has limits. I think you understand the difference between human wisdom and God's wisdom. Human wisdom is temporary and limited. But God, God's wisdom is infinite and unlimited like himself. Wisdom is now going to leave the area of speculation and is going to begin to ask and answer, how can I use this information in the very real world in which I live? Many skeptics and critics don't see Christianity and biblical faith as having currency in the real world. You've probably heard people say to you, oh, you Christians, you church people, you go to church, you read your Bible, you live in a different world, in a dream world, in a naive world. You're insulated from evil. You're naive and ignorant about suffering. True? No, it's not true. We're real people living in a real world, aren't we? We have husbands and wives and children. We suffer pain and heartache, disappointment and discouragement. We experience all of life's joys and all of life's limitations. And people wonder whether or not we have a good handle on this thing called pain and suffering. If there's a God, then we have to ask and answer the question, well, why is there so much pain? Why is there so much wickedness? Why is there so much suffering? If there is no God, the atheist has to be able to come to grips that, that we have only ourselves to blame for the circumstance that we find ourselves in. If there is a God, people ask the question, well, 
Doesn't he understand what's going on? Doesn't he care about what's going on? Is it possible that he knows, but he doesn't care or that he knows and cares, but he doesn't have the resources or the power to make a difference? Some people ponder the question and they become agnostics or they become atheists as they begin to wrestle with this issue. But they simply substitute one problem for another. Because they don't ask the question, well, why is there anything that's good? Why is there anything that's decent? Why is there anything right or holy or pure? You know, one of the most incredible questions that have ever been asked is if there is no God and if there is no such thing as goodness, how do you explain Jesus? How do you explain his entrance into the world? How do you explain his life and his teachings and his love and his ministry? How do you explain him? Buddhists and some of the people who embrace what's called the mind science, they suggest that, well, maybe evil isn't even real. Maybe it's just simply an illusion and maybe we should pretend like it doesn't even exist. Or that God is growing, evolving, changing, coming to a place where he'll have enough power to fully and finally address the issue of the issue of evil and he'll be able to finally overcome it. Warren Wearsby hits the proverbial nail on the head when he writes, quote, Solomon does not deny the existence of God. Or the reality of evil. And he doesn't limit the power of God. Solomon solves the problem of evil by affirming these factors and seeing in them their proper perspective. We must not forget that one major source of evil in this world is fallen human beings. And all that they do. Both good and evil. And have helped to create problems of one kind or another. God can't be blamed for that. And he illustrates the point. He says in the dark days of World War II, somebody asked a friend of mine, Wiersbe writes, why doesn't God stop the war? My friend wisely replied, he didn't start it in the first place. Is God the author of evil and wickedness? And sin? No. But make no mistake about it, even though he's not the author of wickedness or evil or sin, he will bring it to a full and final resolution. And the reason why he defers isn't because he doesn't know and he doesn't care. The Bible says he's not willing that any should perish, that all should come into everlasting life. God has orchestrated a plan so that human beings could be forgiven and they could be reconciled to himself through Jesus Christ. In broad sweeping terms, the preacher will deal with the issue of wisdom when dealing with the wicked who are in authority, each and every one of you will at some time in your life have to deal with a person who God places in your life. And you're going to ask the question, how do I deal with this person? It might be a boss. It might be a spouse. It might be an enemy. It might even be a friend. So Solomon will talk about dealing with people in authority in verses 1 through 9. Dealing with injustice and inequity in verses 10 through 14. Dealing with mystery. In verses 15, 16, and 17, 
How can we be men and women who are wise and humble in our dealings with authority, with those who seemingly have power over us in the world? How are we to remain wise and calm in circumstances that don't seem to make much sense? Don't you wish you were wise each and every time you spoke? Don't you wish you had exactly the right thing at exactly the right time? There was a 90s song. He's everything you want. He's everything you need. He's everything exciting that you wish you could be. He says all the right things at exactly the right time, but he means nothing to you. And you don't know why. When I heard that song, I I used to think it reminds me of Jesus. He's everything you want. He's everything you need. He's everything exciting that you wish that you could be. Jesus always says exactly the right thing at exactly the right time. What is it about his life and his ministry and his love that people bump up against and they say, that's not what I want. That's not what I want when it's exactly what everybody needs. You know, wisdom is often in a fierce battle. And you know who is one of the great enemies of wisdom? It's pride. The weapon of choice that wisdom employs to fight the deadly battle against pride is humility. David Jeremiah suggests that this chapter, Solomon defines humility in at least five different ways. In this chapter, we discover that knowing how much you don't know, living with what you don't like, Accepting what you can't change, enjoying what you can't explain, discovering what you can't discover. It's kind of frustrating. Especially if you want to know everything. Only to discover that you can't know everything. One of the great philosophers of the 20th century, Clint Eastwood, a.k.a. Dirty Harry, said, A man's got to know his limitations. And he was right. So Solomon is going to point us to the fact that wisdom will allow us to live in peace with those who are in authority. But Christians are like pianos. Have you noticed that? We all need a little tuning from time to time. And so he's going to redirect our attention. And in verse one, he says, who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the sternness of his face is changed. By the way, that that expression and who knows the interpretation of a thing is very, very interesting in the original language. The Hebrew word appears here and only here in the Old Testament. It has an Aramaic parallel in the book of Daniel where it refers to Daniel's extraordinary ability to interpret dreams or to solve mysteries to deep problems and riddles and enigmas. So when Solomon says, who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing, he seems to be using the the term interpret beyond the idea of dreams or deep mysteries. He's using it in the sense of a person who can size up a situation and act appropriately. I think the preacher is talking about a person who can see a problem. And then when they see that problem, they can see 
through to a solution to that problem. That becomes the, one of the very definitions of wisdom. You probably all heard the expression that, that the difference between knowledge and wisdom is wisdom is the application of knowledge. Let me give you an example. Knowledge. Tomato is a fruit. Wisdom. You don't put tomatoes in fruit salad. Yeah, on the surface, it doesn't make maybe you do put tomatoes in a fruit salad. I don't know. It just doesn't seem to make sense to me. When he speaks of the person who can see through a problem. He's reminding us that wisdom at the right time. Requires a clear mind. When it says. A man's wisdom makes his face to shine. It's a it's a proverbial statement. It's it's the idea that when a man's face shines, you can see the reflection of the light off the surface of his face. The reason the person's face shines is because he or she knows the answer. In my high school class, we had 11 valedictorians and six salutatorians. Four of the people who were valedictorians went to West Point, Annapolis, the Coast Guard Academy, and the Air Force Academy. In my graduating class, there were some really smart people. As a matter of fact, one of the valedictorians of my class who went to West Point became the valedictorian of of his class at West Point. Were you you ever in in, in school with a person who knew all of the answers? Their face would shine. The teacher would ask a question. You can see the reflection of the light on their face. Do you remember when you were a kid growing up and the teacher would ask some something and one person's face would light up and there was that sense of confidence? Oh, I know the answer. That's what he's talking about. The person's face shines like a school child who is unafraid to raise her hand if called on by the teacher and a person's face changes from this stern expression to a soft expression in the sense that the person is patient, tolerant, gracious. In other words, wisdom at the right time is not just simply having a clear mind, but it's also having a cheerful countenance or a happy face. So Solomon in this chapter makes reference to the king and the ruler. I just want to point something out to you very quickly. There are several references to the person in charge. Look in verse two, the commandment of the king. Look at verse four. The word of the king is authoritative. Look at verse five. He who keeps the royal command. Look at verse nine. A man who has exercised authority over another. But Solomon is making mention of somebody else in the passage. The minister. The officer. The attendant. In the chapter, there's the person who's in charge and the person who follows the person in charge. Isn't that like the real world? In almost any given circumstance, you have the person in charge and the person who has to follow the person in charge. I have a question to ask you. Is the person in charge always the smartest person at the business or in the room? No. But is the person in charge responsible to make the decision? Does the person in charge always make the right decision or a wise decision? 
But you being the person who is not in charge, what is your responsibility? To obey the person who is in charge. And that's what's being talked about here. Solomon makes mention of a minister or an officer or an attendant in the king's court. And the minister or the officer or, or the, uh, the person who has to follow has this obligation to hear and then execute the ruler's commands. And so if you're going to be smart, you're going to have to have a clear mind. And you're going to have to have a happy face. Because with a clear mind and a happy face, you have at least the beginnings of dealing with people who are in charge. In almost every circumstance, like I said, there were powerful rulers. In the Bible, it starts off with all kinds of wicked and evil rulers who are talked about. The first big king that's mentioned in the Bible is a guy named Nimrod. And there's a reason why we use the term Nimrod as an idiomatic expression of a person who's a jerk. That person's such a Nimrod. In the ancient world, the king had absolute power. The king could say, you live and you die. The king could say, you have something and you have nothing. As a matter of fact, when we look at examples in the Bible and the people who had to deal with these people, I think of Joseph and Pharaoh. I think of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. I think of Nehemiah and Cyrus. All three have difficult bosses. Have you ever had a difficult boss? Maybe you even have a difficult boss right at this very moment. And sometimes when you're dealing with the boss, you have to exercise enormous wisdom. Now, thankfully, we live in a world where your boss typically can't execute you. The boss can fire you, but he can't throw you into the fire. So in a way, we've made a little bit of progress. And it's interesting to me as we follow the lives of those three men and we see how they responded in the most unusual of circumstances in each and every circumstance, with the exception of Nehemiah, when Daniel was before the king, his face shined, the Bible says, like an angel. When Joseph was before the Pharaoh, his face shined like an angel. Nehemiah's face typically shined like an angel, but there was a time when his countenance fell and it was always a risky venture because if you were unhappy around the king, you could be easily executed. You know, my mother said, I can't be blamed for the face that I was born with. I had no responsibility for that. But she said, I have to take ownership of the face that I have. And by the way, the face that you have is the face that you have. And when you turn 50 and you go north of 50 like me, you're pretty much responsible for the face that you have. But what's more contagious? What's more infectious than a happy face? So what happens when the king gives an order? 
And it's not wise and it's not just. What happens when a king asks the servant to do that which is wrong or that which is evil? What happens when your boss or someone in your life asks you to do something that you're not quite prepared to do? That's when you have to call on wisdom, huh? Lord, I need help to understand and then to respond in such a way that I can honor you. In this particular passage, some of the options that Solomon suggests is don't do it, disobey, desert, run away. Defy. Look at verse 3. Do not stand up for a bad cause. The NIV says, don't promote the king's evil plan or don't get involved in a plan to overthrow the king. It just depends on the translation. And four, discernment in chapter 5 and 6. With wisdom, understand the time and the judgment and the procedure. The point, when we're dealing with people and we need to know how to deal with people, Like Joseph, like Daniel, like Nehemiah, we need generous amounts of wisdom. And in verse 2, we need wisdom at the right time also includes not just a, a pure mind, not just a happy face, but discerning speech. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command for the sake of your oath to God. In other words... Why should we keep the king's commandment? I think you know the answer. In the ancient world, if you don't do what the king says, you die. In the real world, if you don't do what the boss says, you... Sometimes you could lose your job. Sometimes something could happen. You could, it could be a miserable life, a miserable circumstance. The officer, by the way, had to be loyal to his oath of allegiance to God and to the king. And see, part of the point is who is the source of all authority? If you believe the Bible, if you believe Romans chapter 12, 13 and 14, you begin to understand that authority comes from God because God is the ultimate source of authority. You may not like it, but God placed you in a family with a mother and a father. You may not like it. You may be the father or mother to children who rebel and disobey and and who don't necessarily act in a way that's consistent with the way you want them to act. Almost everyone has some sort of leadership that they have to exercise. Breaking oaths and promises and disobeying orders has grave consequences. And so he says... Keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. In other words, let obedience be a part of your life. In verse three, it says, don't be hasty to go out from his presence. Do not take your stand for an evil thing, for he does whatever he pleases him. In other words, here's here's the scenario that he's giving. Do not be hasty to go from his presence. He's describing a servant who leaves the king's presence and gives up his place in court. In other words, he's saying you're in a difficult situation. You don't know how to deal with the difficult situation. Here's your first option. Storm out in a huff. Good idea or bad idea? 
It could be a good idea, but most of the time it's probably a bad idea, huh? To blow up and to storm out and stomp your feet. He basically says, desertion isn't always the best course of action. By the way, if you're in an ancient court and you desert the king, does the king still have the option to kill you? He does. Do not take your stand for an evil thing. It could mean one of two things. It could mean don't promote wickedness or evil. It could mean if you decide to leave, don't cause division. One translation says, don't stand up for a bad cause. I think that that's what the NIV says. One translation says, don't get involved in a plan to overthrow the king. If that's the case, you're in big trouble. Who's the king who's writing this? Solomon. Oh, you're unhappy with what I'm doing, Solomon's saying? If you storm out in a huff, if for whatever reason in his generosity he decides to let you live, just leave it there. By the way, is there a place for Christians to disagree? The answer is yes. Is there a place even for Christians to disobey their government? The Bible says typically we're supposed to obey our government. But if the government asks us to do something that is wicked or evil or sinful, then we have a responsibility to obey God. Thomas Jefferson wrote, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Here's my question. Is that true? I kind of think it is. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, remember when the religious leaders said to Peter and the rest, they said, don't you talk about Jesus. Don't you tell people about Jesus. Stop preaching Jesus. And Peter replies, we ought to obey God rather than men. It isn't always that clear cut. It, it isn't always that clearly defined, but when it is that clearly defined, I think that we do have to obey God rather than men. In verse 4, he says, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? In other words, clearly, does a king's word have more power than a servant's word? Yeah, the answer is yes. Have you ever been in a situation where you go, look, I'm not the boss. I just work here. I don't get to make the decision of who lives and who dies. I just work here. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Here's the idea. The, the king's word is bound to prevail. I want to draw your attention a little bit away, just for a moment, to another king. The king of heaven. Where the word of a king is, there is power. Who is the ultimate king? Who's the king of kings? Who's the Lord of lords? Isn't it true that Jesus Christ really is the king of kings and the Lord of lords? And that in the end, his power will prevail. You might be wondering, well, why doesn't it prevail right now? For whatever reason, there are 
circumstances where God allows darkness and wickedness to have its way. As a matter of fact, before Jesus was crucified, he made a special note and he said, this is a time of darkness and wickedness. This is your time. But your time isn't going to be forever. There is going to come a time when the darkness will leave and the light will come. There's going to come a time when the night will cease and the morning will come. There's going to come a time when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does exactly what needs to be done. And who may say to him, what are you doing? There is going to come a time when everyone will stand before the true and the living God. I've actually had people say to me, to my face, I can't wait to get to heaven and give God a piece of my mind. I say, whatever piece that is, I suggest you keep it. You're going to need all of the mind that you have once you get there. And I suspect that when you're standing before the true and living God. Most of your questions are going to disappear. And you're going to look for and long for just one word that comes from his mouth. Enter in my faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. I suspect that the first thing in your mouth isn't going to be, hey, I've got, I got a question for you. Because all of a sudden, your presence in that place is going to make questions superfluous. In the ancient world, it was very rare. And under certain circumstances, like in the book of Daniel, where a king's command could be nullified, in the ancient world, a king's order became the, the, the thing to do by virtue of the fact that the king's will became reality. So be careful what you say. That's the point that he's making. Solomon reminds us that a wise person is loyal in verse 2, faithful in verse 3, Fair and trustworthy in verse 3. Supportive in verse 4. So if you need wisdom at exactly the right time, you're not only going to need a clear mind, you're not only going to need a cheerful face, you're not only going to need discernment, but you're going to need a keen sense of judgment. Look at verse 5. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful, and a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. <laughs> In the NIV, I think it says, the wise heart will know the proper time. And the right procedure. Question. Is there a right time to keep your mouth shut? Yeah. Is there a wrong time to keep your mouth shut? Yeah. So what is the one element that you need in order to know when to open your mouth and when to shut your mouth? It's this thing called wisdom. That's what he's talking about. He who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. Paul makes the same argument in the book of Romans, chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, when he basically says, look, 
don't defy the government. Because this way, you won't be punished. The wise heart knows the proper time and the proper procedure. Joseph chose exactly the right moment. Do you remember in in the book of Genesis where Joseph is taken captive and he's placed in a dungeon and he suffers all of these horrible things. He's made the prime minister of Egypt. The brothers come from uh, where Jacob is staying and and he's shaved his head. He's got all of his makeup on. He's speaking in the, the, the Egyptian language. The brothers don't recognize him. Does Joseph tell his brothers right away, dudes, I'm pretty much the head honcho in all of Egypt. No, he doesn't, does he? Joseph chose exactly the right moment to reveal his true identity to his wayward brothers. Why? Because Joseph had to know if they were really, truly sorry for their sin. Joseph needed to know if they had really repented. Joseph needed to know. If they were willing to have a right relationship with God and if they were willing to have a right relationship with their earthly father, Jacob. The reason why this becomes important to you is because sometimes in your walk and in your relationship with the Lord, you're wondering, where is the Lord? Where are you, Lord? Why aren't you speaking to me? Why aren't you telling me what I need to know? The Bible makes it abundantly clear that he's not far from you. God isn't withholding his presence or his love or his willingness. But there are times that are the right time and there are times that are the wrong time. And Joseph heard them confess their sins. Joseph heard them express their sorrow. Joseph heard their hearts break as they were trying to communicate with their own father the circumstance that they found themselves in. And that's when he chose to reveal himself. Nehemiah was heartbroken over the fact that the walls of of Jerusalem were torn down and he wasn't sure whether the king would release him in order to undertake the great task of rebuilding the wall. And so he had to exercise discernment at exactly the right time to make his case known. Daniel was a prisoner of war in a strange culture with an even stranger religious practice. And he was ordered by the chief steward to adopt the king's banquet. But with gentleness and wisdom, Daniel said, hey, let's do an experiment. You feed all of these foreign kids your your, uh, king's delicacies. Let us eat according to our custom." And then we'll have a little contest. We'll see who's the brightest and we'll see who's the healthiest. Daniel says, look, you feed them what you want to feed them. We'll keep kosher. And what was the result? Not only were they healthier and not only were they happier, they kept themselves ceremonially clean and they were promoted in the king's court. Wisdom was the key ingredient. 
The apostles exercised spiritual discernment when they were arrested and persecuted in Acts chapter 4 and 5. They showed always, 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 they showed always respect towards authority. The one time where we see Paul not showing respect is when the high priest orders the servant next to him, slap that man's face. And he goes, how dare you slap me, you whitewashed sepulcher? And the guy slaps him again. He goes, how dare you talk to the high priest that way? And he goes, hey, I had no idea it was the high priest. The Bible clearly says that we're to respect those people that God has placed in authority over us. What does that mean? What does that mean? It means it means that we show respect towards authority, even when they're acting with prejudice, contrary to God's law. The apostles were willing to suffer for righteousness sake in order for the Lord to honor them. Don't. For a moment, think that the Bible teaches because you're being treated unfairly or you're being treated unjustly. You're being treated wickedly or even illegally. That that gives you permission. To act in any other way than as a God honoring, Christ loving, spirit filled Christian. By the way. It applies to your immediate relationships as well. Husbands and wives, children and parents. And in verse six, it says, because for every matter, there is a time and judgment, though the misery of a man increases greatly. We do have options. We have choices. So far, Solomon says, hey, you can run away. Hey, you can disobey. Hey, you can defy orders. Hey, you can even fight back. But you should think carefully. And consider cautiously. The consequences. Of what you're doing. It's difficult to be a Christian, isn't it? And relationships are complicated, aren't they? No wonder I find myself having rubbed a little hole in my Bible in James chapter 4. Lord, I need wisdom. You said come and ask. Now I'm asking. Lord, you said that wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle. Lord, if it's going to be wise, it's going to be pure. If it's going to be wise, it's going to be peaceable. Lord, if it's going to be wise, it's going to be gentle. But impurity and alarm don't seem to be the peaceable fruit of the spirit. In verse seven, Solomon says, for he does not know what will happen. So who can tell him when it will occur? In a sense, he's basically saying, look, you have enough misery. Why would you add to your misery? You can't tell the future. You don't know what the king is going to do. You don't know how he's going to respond to these decisions. I want you to think this through. There are four parts in these three verses. If you're going to be wise, make sure it's the right time. If you're going to be wise, make sure that you have the right judgment. If you're going to be wise, make sure that it's the right activity. If you're going to be wise, don't only just look at the right time. Don't just simply exercise the right judgment. Don't embrace the right activity. Make sure you have the right attitude as well. 
Why is all of this important? Because guess what? This becomes a formula for how to act wisely in any given circumstance. Make sure it's the right time. Make sure you have the right judgment. Make sure you embark on a course of action that makes sense. And make sure you have the right attitude when you do so. So exercise discernment. Because guess what? It's going to take discernment to know the right time. It's going to take discernment to have the right judgment. The impulsive person overreacts and storms out of the office, storms out of the court, leaves the job, runs out of the house. It might make matters worse, Solomon is saying. So wisdom helps us understand our situation. And this becomes the key concept. Solomon invites you to say, understand your situation And then try to honor God in that situation. So wisdom at the right time also includes a humble spirit. Look at verse eight. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. And no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war. And wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. In other words, Solomon is keenly aware Of the limits of reason and wisdom. As you know, broadly, things fall into two categories. Things that you have control over and things that you have no control over. Does that mean that 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 you don't worry about the things that you don't have control over? Now... Clearly, someone does have power over a man's spirit. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. Oh, yes, someone does. The author of spiritual life. The Bible says that God is the author of spirits. That God has created all things for himself, for his for his own good pleasure. And no one has the power in the day of death. No, someone does have the power in the day of death. God has power in the day of death. The person who gives life, the author of life. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. Only God has power over this area. And that's Solomon's point. Solomon is the wisest, the richest and the most indulged human being who has ever lived. Yes, even more than Bill Gates. And here's the point. A good leader doesn't make excuses for limitations, but recognizes them and acknowledges them and considers the Lord in all of their decisions and allows the leading of the spirit and the sovereignty of God to inform decisions. No one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit. It's Solomon's way of saying, what if you're a person and you don't want to die? But it's time for you to die. Do you have the ability to. Stall death. The Bible says it's appointed once for a human being to die. And then the judgment. The Bible says that all of your days are numbered. And when your number comes up. Do you have the ability to make your life one day longer by virtue of the fact that you're afraid or you're angry or you're rich or you're poor or you're good or you're bad? Can you lengthen your life 
just because you want to. Particularly when your time is up. No. Here's part of the point. We Christians wear the cloak of humility. In the Bible, the Christian life is compared to an eagle hastening to its prey in Job 9.26. A pilgrimage in Genesis 47.9. A tale that's been told, Psalm 90 verse 9. A swift post, Job 9.25. A swift ship, Job 9.26. A hand breath, Psalm 39.5. A shepherd's tent that's being torn down, Isaiah 38.8. A dream, Psalm 73.20. A sleep, Psalm 90 verse 5. A vapor, James 4 verse 14. A shadow, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 6.12, a thread that's cut by the weaver, Isaiah 38.12, a flower that's picked, Job 14.2, grass, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24, water that's poured out on the ground, 2 Samuel 14.14, 14, wind, Job 7.7. 7. Does, does that sound pretty impermanent to you? You're here, and then you're gone. And for the unbeliever, and for the make-believer, it's not just the end of this life, but it's the beginning of a new life. But it's a life apart from God, and it's a part of life apart from Christ. But for the Christian, it's a glorious beginning. Some think of it as a going away. But when you as a Christian die, you don't go away. You arrive. Your departure is, in fact, an arrival. A stranger is away from home and a pilgrim is on their way home. You're a stranger here. And you're a pilgrim here. In verse 9, it says, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun. There's a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Solomon gives a few warnings when he closes this part. He basically is reminding the reader, if you're in a position of leadership, is it possible that if you happen to be the person in charge, That you can be in charge (laughs) and it's going to cause you a great deal of harm because you're the one in charge. Yes. So Solomon's point. Never, never, never use your position to take advantage unfairly of somebody else. I'm going to repeat it. Never, never. Never use your position to take advantage of someone unfairly. Why? Because it will come back and it will haunt you. In other words, here's Solomon's point. You're taking advantage of another person unfairly. And here's Solomon's wise counsel. This will come back and hurt you. This will come back and harm you. It's reiterated in the New Testament when it says God is not mocked. What a person sows, they also reap. Think carefully. When you do so, you put yourself at risk. The end does not justify the means. 
You cannot achieve good things by evil practices. Solomon is saying, do you want wisdom at the right time? Then think this through. Think carefully. Wicked behavior never results in God's deliverance. You, your, your mother, your father, your grandmother, your grandfather must have said to you, can you accomplish good by doing evil? What's the answer? No, you can't. The ends don't justify the means. Being a godly leader means that you're acting with wisdom. That means intention and purpose. And godly leadership is never easy. Leaders have opportunities and responsibilities that are unavailable to those who seek the safety and security of following instead of leading. But when you become the leader, there's real value. Because you get to be a model, an example. And vision is way more than just seeing into the future. Vision is being able to see God in the circumstance that you find yourself in. And when you pause and when you say, Lord, I'm in a difficult circumstance. I need a fresh vision. I need to see you in the circumstance that I find myself in so I can learn from you and receive wisdom from you. Because guess what? You're a Christian. And you're to be wise as a serpent. And you're to be gentle like a dove. The Bible says, in faith, we are believers. In heart, we are obedient. In character, we are saints. In relation, we are sons and daughters. In conflict, we are soldiers. In the world, we are pilgrims. In the darkness, we shine his light. In the earth's pollution, we are salt. In the vine, we are branches. In our walk, we are living epistles. In our expectations, we are heirs and at all times. We belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. And Jesus extends an invitation. And the invitation is learn from me because I'm meek and lowly, humble. Learn from me. And when you learn that lesson, guess what? You will have wisdom. When you need it most. At just the right time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord. We want to be wise. As serpents and gentle like doves. Lord we want. To be able to be men and women. Who in humility acknowledge. That we don't know everything. But that we live and love. And serve the one who does know everything. And Lord, that we would never confuse those two, that we would never be so bold or impudent or arrogant as to assume that we know what you know, when in fact it's not true. But we do know what you've allowed us to know. That Jesus Christ is Lord, that sins can be forgiven, and that salvation has been made manifest in the person of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So again, Lord, we pray <laughs> that we would benefit from this man, from Solomon, 
that we would think about his words, that we would heed his advice, at least in this situation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.